Welcome to episode 68 of the Digital Fabrication Experiment, hosted by Eddie Kramer, Chris Lee, and myself, Winston Moy. We're CNC enthusiasts, and we'd like to bring you into our conversations about life in the machine shop, things we're making, and what we're learning. Eddie, Chris, it's been a really long time. How are you guys doing? It has. It's good to get the gang back together. How about you, Chris? Uh, it's been good. I've been keeping busy with everything, but uh, trucking along here. I think the last time we were all together, I had like a bunch of pending sh- improvements in the shop, and I'm kind of halfway through those now. So I had the air conditioner, the mini split in, and man, <laughs> life is so much better <laughs> in there. Uh, it's working great. Yeah. And uh, thanks for everyone that kind of steered me towards Mr. Cool when I first mentioned I was looking for something. Um, yeah, I think uh, that was definitely the right call. Super easy to install. I did it myself. Um, had the, you know, other than the electrician pulling the circuit, it was all me. And then I had my wife help me on a, on the outdoor unit to lift it up, but everything else, like one guy can do. Um, it was not much fun drilling through the brick, <laughs> a three and a half inch hole through brick. But uh, other than that, it was like, it's pretty smooth install. And it's easily uh, keeping up with Texas heat. So no problem. Nothing like the little roll around AC I had, which was basically if you're standing right in front of it, it would give you a nice cool breeze. But the space itself, you know, the shop space, which is, it's two car garage. So what is that? 400 square feet. It just really wasn't keeping it cool. Um, the mini split, like the whole garage is nice. And it's like basically, you know, going from inside the house to the garage, there's really no temperature difference. So it's really nice. Uh, we'll see what the electric bill looks like in about a week <laughs> for the first month of running it. But Every dollar is worth it. To be honest, I think it's probably going to be less expensive than what I was running in there before because the other one was running all the time. Like I had to keep it running demand to humidity and it never reached the goal temperature. So it was basically running seven by 24. Um, this thing, you know, kind of reaches the temperature, shuts off or just runs the fan and, you know, kind of cycles like it's supposed to. <laughs> so hopefully it's not costing me quite as much. Um, so that's like, that was the one probably most critical thing I wanted to get uh, in the shop because I didn't want to go through what I went through last summer. And uh, the only other like life improvement is the compressor, which I have ordered. Uh, gosh, I probably ordered that right after the last podcast, I think. Long lead time, so I'm still got two more weeks until it gets here. Uh, so <laughs> my my uh, cat piston compressor is actually hanging in there. Uh, other than driving me nuts with the noise, it's, it's working. So... Uh, I need to go like make it two more weeks <laughs> and then it should be nice. Not only cool in there, but quiet in there. So can't wait. I mean, just in time, right? Cause it's getting hotter now. Yeah. Yeah. And it's been like busy too. Like, uh, you know, work's been good. Um, so I'm in there, you know, most of the day and I mean, I still, you know, the kind of work I'm doing, I can kind of get it started and go in back in. Uh, so even when I had the poor AC in there, it wasn't too bad for me, but I just I don't really like the equipment getting that hot. So, um, and plus, just having the big temperature swings not good for accuracy and stuff like that. So now it's like pretty stable. Um, there's a you know temperature gradient between the floor and like eye level, like you would have in any uh, like I say any kind of climate controlled environment, except for like a CMM lab. <laughs> but um, it's not too bad. Like I, I have a floor sensor and then a sensor on my desk. So it's like about between four and six degrees difference between those. 
and uh, with with the new AC. Like before, it was it was basically the floor was always a little bit cooler, and the eye level is always pretty much the same as the outside ambient temperature. <laughs> so it's like the AC wasn't really cooling anything but the first inch of the floor. You know? um, but yeah, it's it's been good. And uh, what else did I do? Also. So as part of that process, having the electrician out here, I went ahead and had my sub panel upgraded um, from the main box. So now I have more amperage going to that. Um, so basically just in case I ever do get a second machine in there, I'm ready to go on power. As long as it's you know similar to the Neo and power draw, I should be able to uh, just basically have a breaker added and run the circuit for that pretty quickly. Are you still thinking about a second Neo then? Um, yeah, I mean, right now that would be the the only thing that would kind of make business sense. Um, but it's not, you know, that would be commercial. Uh, I also I have interest in getting a small lathe just more for fun. But <laughs> that's gonna, I think that maybe both of those are gonna wait have to wait till I get uh, more space. I think because um, yeah, I can't really justify a second machine right now. I'm I'm keeping the first one pretty busy, but not to the point where like. I fully utilized it, so I'm getting there. Um, yeah, it's just about where I want it to be, actually. How much do you have to pay your wife to get her to park outside? <laughs> yeah, we have been negotiating on that. So, I mean, that's the other option is I can always take over that second space. Um, right now, I could actually fit a Neo, a second Neo into the existing space I have. I'd have to just give up one of my, kind of a, uh, one of the work areas I have in there. It'd be tight. I could do it. But uh, yeah, I think I'd rather just have it in the second bay, have them kind of side by side. I think I'll put that decision off as long as I can. Right? Try to get the max out of the machine I have now. Um, it's kind of scary not having redundancy. That's the other thing, right? I do have, you know, basically if anything happens to my one spindle, my one machine, right? I kind of can't keep up with my client's demand. So the CNC machine is one thing I don't have redundancy on. So, so far it hadn't been too big a problem. I did buy a new machine. Nothing as interesting as the Neo. So I did finally get a new 3D printer here. The, uh, I ended up going with the Ender 5 plus the big, kind of the large format FDM printer. And I think I got that, it came in in late June. So I've been running it pretty, pretty regularly here. Um, works great. It was like exactly the experience I was hoping for. Just basically set it up a little bit uh, basic assembly and then it basically prints without any headaches so it took a little tuning to get the bed leveled i think winston you told me to that's probably the one thing i'd have to yeah just make sure the frame is squared up and take your time to level it but once it's done it's pretty pretty stable yeah i actually put it together on my um surf granite surface plate so i think that helped <laughs> yeah yeah the most accurate like... <laughs> five ever I uh, I built mine just on a new table, and honestly, I haven't had to do anything since. I just turn it on and print. I, I don't even level the bed anymore because I don't touch it. Yeah, the way the the Ender Five Plus and probably the the other Enders come, um, it actually does a pretty good job of self alignment when you bring all the pre assembled subcomponents together. I could I didn't really have to tweak it at all. Just kind of you know I was careful when I was tightening down the bolts to not torque one side too much but um i think the only issue i had at first was i didn't realize how far off i had the bed 
like not level. Like I should have read the instructions first, right? So I'm like, oh, it has a bed probe. I don't need to worry about that, right? But no, you have to like you have to get the course adjustment manually with the four knobs before that probe will work because the probe doesn't really have that much range. So uh, once I realized that, like I couldn't get the my first print to stick at all, it was sticking in the front and then kind of coming loose in the back. And then I realized I had like a six degree taper, <laughs> you know, tables like dropping off in the back. So uh, got all that fixed up and now like just the the homing and the, the bed leveling probe take care of it on every print. So yeah, I've run some, I think the longest job I ran on it was 34 hours. No problem. Oh wow, like, nice. Yeah. Yeah, so it's been. I, I, I appreciate the uh, recommendation on the looking at the Ender from you guys and actually some of the some of the DFX listeners. Um, yeah, I think between that and uh, Prusa, like either one would have been a good choice for me. The Ender had the advantage of having a larger print bed, which I've actually taken advantage of. Uh, that's like the, my favorite feature about it. Like I used to always limit like part size with my old printer because it was so small. Like I would split parts into two, you know, then have to create some sort of fastening or glue glue line or something. But I keep forgetting that. <laughs> I don't have to do that. Like, oh, wait, I, I can make this thing full size, one piece. And yep, it'll fit. So uh, yeah, it's been fun. Yeah, I mean, that's the, you know, that's pretty much the big uh, positive about the Ender 5 Plus. It's just that huge work size, right? I'm actually waiting for them to release a model where it's a, like the Ender 5 Plus, where it's a double supported Z but with a core XY uh, kind of movement system on top for the XY. Yeah, yeah I, I um, for the speed mostly, right? Is that the advantage? Yeah, yeah for the that? speed. Yeah. yeah, I was running, I've tweaked the settings. So I'm running, I'm printing at like the fastest speed I print is 100 millimeters per minute. And um, I, actually, I take that back. I finally backed, backed off to about 94, I think. I can't remember if that's, that's, perimeter i think it's the perimeter or the inlet infill one of those whichever one's normally the highest and then everything else like all the other speeds are proportional to that in this in the slicer software i use and uh yeah it's like it's way faster than my old printer <laughs> i think the old one the printer bot ran at 40 millimeters per minute max um so yeah it's like you know, this is this is several generations of technology newer than what I was used to. So and you can print even faster if you uh, if you download like these three D printed like fan pathways, like basically to divert the fan air to right on the nozzle so it cools faster. I've heard people telling me that you can get like 40 percent increase in speed if you can direct the the cooling on right on top. Yeah, because it needs enough time to cool, right, um, before you get that next layer down, if it's a small part. And they're all over Thingiverse. Like, you can just download them and print them out and stuff. Yeah, the only I did two upgrades on the printer so far. One was um, I ordered the silent board when I ordered the printer itself, so I got that installed. Um, I never even listened to it with the default. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it's super quiet. All I hear is the fans on that. And... After a couple of weeks, I upgraded the, the Bowden tube to PTFE. So I was starting to get a little bit of sticking with that at the higher speed. Um, yeah, so now it's like retracts are fast. Everything works really well on that printer. Um, yeah, I think, like like you said, the fan uh, fan guide might be the next, or fan nozzle might be the next upgrade. Yeah, and it, that, that's a good one to do. 
and I haven't even run the heated bed yet. It's like I'm, I've been running PLA, but now I think I'm going to try uh, PETG next and um, quit printing PLA. <laughs> Everything I've written PLA, like after a year, it's so brittle, it just it cracks, right? Or it's easily breaks. I do a lot of stuff with flexures, and PLA is just long term not a good uh, not a good choice for that. It's it too brittle. Yeah, so I'm hoping like PETG, um, which I never could do on my old printer. It just I didn't have a heated bed, didn't like it. So we'll see. Yeah, lots of I'm kind of getting back into additive a little bit. Yeah, Winston, are you are you still using your Ender Five? Uh, not as much as I would, just because I haven't done a lot in the garage lately. Um, but I still love that printer more than the uh, Ultimakers we have at work. <laughs> you know, I. I We'll concede that it might be like the the cheaper filament we get, um, but like I don't do anything special with the filament I have at home. I don't like keep it dry or anything. It's just the the thinner one point seven five I think millimeter filament is just very fault tolerant. It's flexible. The three millimeter stuff um, will just get very uh, brittle, especially towards the inside of the reel, and so it just snaps going into the Bowden tube. Um, so like. I don't know. I, I still very much enjoy using the Ender 5. I just haven't printed very much on it lately. Yeah, the thing is with the, such a big print area, it's like I never had to worry about running out of filament or running a spool out in the middle of a print on the little printer because it never it just couldn't print much volume. Like, but this thing easily could eat up a spool probably on one big print, you know. Um, yeah, so you could actually have a print that takes a spool and a half to complete. So... Yeah, it's pretty neat. I think the only, like, probably the one other upgrade I'd consider is a larger diameter nozzle because I'd be printing bigger things with it. Um, the speed, you know, speed things up a little bit. I don't really care about how they look so much as getting them done in a decent amount of time. So usually use it for either prototyping or uh, some sort of fixture or holder, right, for some of the other stuff I do. So I'm not doing, like, the figurines or anything. Yeah, it's good. I think it's a good choice. It seems to be uh, just basically click and forget <laughs> for the most part. How about you guys? Any any new stuff going on in the shops? Um, I can't say I've got too much new going on. It's just it's been really busy at work, really busy in life. But I finally revived an old project I had uh, that was kind of for fun, but kind of also for work. Um, I've been designing a new CNC machine. And I don't mean like CNC milling machine. I mean like camera numerical control. Um, we've got a lot <laughs> of old uh, Shapeoko parts in the shop uh, from like uh, the early days of beta testing and prototyping and trying to ensure the Shapeoko Pro and the Shapeoko 4 were shippable. So I've got like some lengths of uh, linear rail, HG15, MG, N15, like that size, um, some, some lengths of aluminum extrusion, and I really hate seeing that kind of stuff go to waste. So um, I'm going to design a camera slider um, using those materials. And I think I'm going to be a little ambitious and try and um, make it uh, motion controlled using the carbide motion board. So I get one translation axis um, down the rail. And I'm also going to put a little rotary axis on it so I can like pan a camera as I go. So if this works out, I should be able to get some cool epic shots of uh, machining um, over like long durations. Or I was thinking I could try and match move the CNC 
uh, so it follows the um, the spindle. Um, so I don't know. It, it'll be a fun project. It'll help recycle parts, and it's probably going to be more complicated than it needs to be. Um, <laughs> yeah, you've got an axis. You still have another axis tree for like a zoom or focus. Yeah, I could try and uh, <laughs> do a follow focus too. Yeah, um, but it's just that I got to do one step at a time. Um, I, I probably should honestly just take a linear rail, stick it on a nomad extrusion, and just do it manually for now. Like enjoy the benefits of having a camera <laughs> slider before spending weeks uh, making a camera slider that's uh, like computer controlled. Um, but that's not really as nah. fun. So. Yeah, nah. exactly. Yeah, I, I like. I, I'd, I'd rather you go this route than uh, than the hand pushing route. We're, we're not. Yeah, I'm curious though. Are you uh, worried about like the sound from the motors, or is most of your footage just going to be like B-roll with not real cutting it's, sounds and stuff? It's going to be um, like I'm just going to ditch the audio. Um, the thing about filming in the carbide shop is that we often have other CNC machines going on in the background, so nothing that's going on in my scene is like clean audio. Um, like it's hard to even like I know sometimes when I'm doing like speeds and feeds stuff like we always think it'd be nice to include uh, footage of it and like sounds. Um, I think that's what Saunders does for um, Proven Cut, just so you have like the visual and also you know what a good cut sounds like. But there's just so much going on in the background of like the Haas, the brother, the UMC just hogging through a cut that it drowns out your your router. So we can't actually really provide uh, the auditory experience of like what an optimal cut sounds like unfortunately right right okay yeah i mean that that make your life easier right because i i'm not sure that was the one thing i've always thought about is like how do we if you need to record audio and you have it on a camera slider like what would you use to make sure that it'd be quiet enough yeah you could definitely use a 3d printer like one of those silent boards i think but it wouldn't drive you have to use the small stepper right something didn't take a lot of current i mean so you can get Trinamic drivers that will handle like a NEMA 23 just fine. Um, for me, though, it's like I'm just trying to reuse the, the motion control hardware we already have. And if I get a board with Trinamics, that means I have to like load Gerbil on it or Marlin or some other firmware and figure out how to control that from scratch. Where here I've got the software interface already done. I have hardware that I know will drive a stepper and I've used it and I'm very comfortable with it. Um, but the thought did cross my mind to sub in Trinamics also because of the step resolution. Um, the micro stepping that we use is kind of uh, coarse, um, just because you get you don't really get peak torque if you subdivide the steps too much. Uh, so we stick to like eighth or sixteenth micro stepping. Um, so the the theoretical resolution of the Shapeoko is uh, one over forty uh, millimeters. That's how many step increments uh, of the NEMA 23 translate into one millimeter of travel. Um, and when you're stepping at that resolution, um, certain speeds you can actually see sort of a, it'll induce uh, resonance in like the camera if it's not super rigidly mounted. Um, so like there are shots that I've done, I've like taped the, like my uh, DJI pocket uh, Osmo gimbal to the machine and you see the like the footage it's just it looks blurry because it's vibrating so much 
Uh, so I'm hoping that linear rail plus I'm doing a little DIY three to one gear reduction on this should give me a pretty smooth motion. Extra credit if you actually write a post-processor infusion to spit out camera <laughs> motion code. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm not quite sure how I'm going to do that yet. I think what I'm going to do is just write out um, a little Excel spreadsheet. Because um, other than the initial like G91 and like your, your uh, startup G code commands, it's really just like G1 X coordinate, Y coordinate feed rate. And if you just take a comma separated value file and just replace the commas with spaces, those are your X, Y, Z coordinates like already set. Um, and you can just paste that into your G code file. Is there a way to add like a, like some kind of like game controller so you can move the joypad and then have it record your, your motion and then play it back? Usually I believe the way it's done is with um, keyframes. So you move it to the first position, save that, move it to the second position, save that, uh, because it's very hard to get like perfectly smooth like motions with a joystick. Um, like you see it in people flying drones. They're trying to do a smooth panning shot, but then they're like, oh, I've got to turn a little more. So they hit the joystick and you see the rate of rotation increase, decrease. Um, so keyframing gets you around that. Uh, but that would um, I would have to build my own software that, like I could save each coordinate and figure out how right. fast I want to ramp through those points. Hmm. Yeah, you got me thinking. So I don't know. Blender might have like the software I used to use the before I had Fusion was you know that light uh, lightweight. It was like a CGI animation and ray tracing software and modeling, right? But it had uh, pretty sophisticated motion, um, basically camera motion, right, for virtual camera. And it would, you could actually, you know, you generate your ease in, ease out, um, keyframes, all that stuff, and it generates the full motion path for you that you could then export just the motion. Um, so I wonder if there's, like, if Blender has something like that where you could basically, you know, create a model or create a model of your setup, your camera slider, and, and generate the motion virtually and just basically steal that motion file to get your acceleration and decel and all that stuff. Yeah. So Stephen Hawes, uh, also known as Stephen the Robot, has done that. He made his own camera slider, and I've seen his channel. It's, there's a lot of cool stuff in it. What he does is he builds a, a camera, like an animated camera trajectory in Blender, and then he has a way to export that into an actual G-code file. That's pretty cool. You have to really love your camera slider. <laughs> and I only have, like, at most, uh, three degrees of freedom. So it's probably going to be um, like translation, pan, maybe focus. Um, I don't think I'm going to build a, a little two-axis trunnion for my camera. Um, but any so. kind of robot work is cool. So that's I think camera slide is pretty cool uh, if it's full CNC. Uh, kind of inspire me to get back to work on my uh, inspection camera system someday. I haven't haven't really had the need for it so much anymore because we're not really chasing the kind of quality problems we had in the earlier days. Got the ice tray stuff dialed in pretty good now, <laughs> but um, but it's still kind of a neat idea. I, mean, I, I might still do some work on that. How about you, Chris? What you been up to in the two months since we last talked? 
Um, you know, that I'm not sure if we talked about that one part that I was doing the five. I think I've sent you guys some pictures of like like six or eight tabs around a part. It was like made out of Duratron, which is like a compressed resin that's heat treated. And um, that project ended up turning out really well. Like the customer only gave us an order for like four parts, right? There was like a mirror. And we thought like, oh, this is never going to come back. And they received those parts. And then we got an order for like 4,000. We're like, holy crap. Um, if we want to fill this order in time, we're going to need another five axis to run it. Cause it's going to take like a month to run the entire order. And we have so many other jobs on the five axis that we can't have that one machine just taken out by this one order. So, uh, we're in talks of getting a second DVF with the pallet pool. Um, so we're trying to figure out if we can get a deal from Ellison, uh, to get a second one. Cause we already have work pretty much piled up for it. Uh, so that's that's the exciting part. Uh, one job can basically cover the machine, right? So that's pretty awesome. Um, and then I started moving on to this Milturn part that generally isn't very complicated, but on the inside, there is a very deep taper, a seven-degree taper. So it starts at like uh, about an inch, and then it goes into three-eighths. And it's about four inches deep, but it's about five and a half inches away from the face. So in order to solve this problem, we had to get a 312 diameter boring bar that can go in all the way to finish that 3/8 hole at the back end. And I have to I designed uh, a custom tool holder to hold that 3/8 or the 312 boring bar because if you imagine if you had like a like a 3/8 boring bar going in 6 inches that thing's going to chatter like crazy, right? So what we're doing is we uh, I created like a custom uh, kind of like uh, design on the outside of the tool holder to basically clear all the internal features we have because we have a couple ribs and we have some stuff we got to dodge and it's like a really I'm scared because it's I'm I'm pretty much like 40 thou away from everything as it's moving so uh, we're in the process of making that tool holder and kind of getting that job done that's pretty much what I've been working at at work uh a lot of the five axis and Milturn stuff is now basically my primary focus. Um, and we actually bought a Formlabs, uh, the 3L, the bigger one. And I've been playing with that with uh, one of the interns. And um, we were printing test parts like these one inch cubes where I created some fake geometry. Right? So something that I could usually measure with a caliper, like a one inch cube with a quarter inch window. And then in that window, there's some tabs that are like 100 thou thick. And basically just kind of figuring out if we needed tabs, how thick they need to be and stuff. But I was impressed. The forum labs on the X and the Y, it was within a thou, maybe two. And on the Z, it was the worst. I think it was like 15 thou was at the worst part. But that made sense because the layer height that the intern chose was about, I think, 20 thou, right? Or uh, what is that, half a millimeter? Yeah, so the it, it, it makes sense right if you set your layer height to that much that's how much you're off by so i think there's we can probably squeeze a lot more um tolerance of the machine but i mean that's just like out the box dump two cartridges in there and then we just hit print just to see what it did and it, it printed out pretty amazing for what we need so um we we bought it not for just like random stuff but basically they have um we're doing these big seals for an airplane and the seals, when they need to be inspected, are not flat. 
they're basically curved like whether it's a door or something like that. So we need to create fixtures that can hold these seals in that place, right? Oh, so the CRM? Yeah. So to inspect, yeah. So basically we're creating these like grid uh, locking systems. So like think of like a nine, you know, a three by three or nine by nine or something. We're going to create these six inch by six inch blocks that will have that grid lock to hold the seal in place. So if you think of a seal as going up and down like a roller coaster and holding everything, that, that's kind of what we bought that thing for. So uh, we don't need it to be super accurate, but 1,000, 2,000 is plenty. That's that's more than enough for us. Um, so that's been fun. I mean, that, that thing was like, you know, I it's kind of like I was a little scared because when they when they asked me which printer to buy, I just pointed them in four labs and I was kind of fingers crossed because I didn't really have any experience with them personally. So I'm glad that everything worked out because that would have made me look really bad if we bought that really expensive printer and then ended up not doing what we wanted. But everyone's pretty happy with it. So everything worked out. Um, and that's pretty much like the day job. The The motorcycle shop, we're, we're currently, I'm still working on those foot pegs. Um, I'm training somebody who's new to Fusion. Like, they design the foot peg actually really well. It's just that, you know, when a new designer comes in, they don't think about design for manufacturability. So there's like fillets and chamfers everywhere that you would be physically impossible or like really difficult to hit. So I'm trying to like show them like, hey, we got to relax on some of these like things. Edge break is one thing, but like to put fillets into chamfers and things like that, like this is like too hard. So uh, what, what we need to do is, uh, the, the constraint is we need to make four foot pegs in an hour to be profitable. So I have a decision to make whether I need to put that on the lathe and have that run 24-7 overnight kind of thing, or if we can uh, use the UMC to our advantage and maybe put like eight of these foot pegs rotated a certain way around like a circular uh, fixture and be able to just run like maybe in, I don't know, like uh, like a two or three hour runtime. So the operator can just load it once in a while and we maybe have two of them. So I've kind of been going back and forth on trying to make this foot peg. Is it better on the lathe? Because our spindle speed on uh, live tool is only 6,000. And on, on the UMC, it's 15K, right? So I'm not sure how much time I can save versus how easier it can be. Plus, I have to worry about what their schedule is like for each machine. So I'm kind of like trying to figure out the best way to go about where does this part fit in the workflow of like the shop and everything. And they actually, uh, we bought two more machines, but they like an older, because we needed something like really easy three axis like machines. We don't need anything crazy or new. So we bought two of these Hyundai machines. I forgot to snap pictures actually. I was busy that day, but um, yeah, they're just a simple FANUC controlled like three axis CNC. And cause we have, you know, like we, those jobs that I talked about before, uh, that one with that crazy, like the automated thing that we built into the programming, that runtime is like 20 hours. So that VF4 basically is useless for a day when we run those parts. So we're we're moving all these super long uh, programs and, and runtimes onto these like Hyundai machines and just so we can offload them. And we're using the Haas as more of like the prototyping, figuring stuff out. And once we get that going and we have more spindles to kind of run on everything. So... Uh, we got a great deal on on the pair, so it was kind of kind of worked out for us. Um, so that's basically all the shop stuff. I mean, nothing nothing too crazy, but enough to keep me busy. And then something that I've been like, I think we've talked about before, but I've always had a question as to Fusion 360's cam generation time. And I think the three of us ran like a stress test that I think Winston created, right? Where we're 
we're generating a cam and we're trying to figure out how much time it took. So the, my original computer, it took us, it took me 30 minutes to generate four toolpaths. And these toolpaths were like, I think Winston added like a, like a hundreds of radiuses and stuff, just a stress <laughs> tester, right? And you threw an yeah. STL in there for fun as well. So uh, it took about 30 minutes to generate and not on that stresses, but on different parts that I work on and different jobs, as soon as I started to get more complex, even in the sketching dimensions, or if I had a lot of part models or, or anything like that, I noticed that my can generation time was really, really long. So I bought this new computer and I basically just bought the best that I could get in the market right now because I wanted to know what actually helps in a Fusion 360 cam generation time. And I, I had all these like hardware uh uh, basically like display things so I can see temperature, I can see how much uh, of the utilization of CPU, GPU, and the RAM is being used. And I got that 30-minute generation time to three minutes. So that's a huge, huge benefit, right? So what I've learned, and I want to share with everybody, is your GPU and your RAM don't matter. Well, they matter to a certain extent, but I think any of the newer edition cards or thing, and any of the RTXs and stuff should be fine. Your RAM, I have 32 gigs of RAM in this one, and I, I didn't even go over like 30% usage. So 16 should be fine. But your CPU is the absolute bottleneck. It is the single factor that made it so fast. One of the other things that I learned is when I, when I selected the setup as a whole and I hit generate, it it did the three minute time to generate everything. But if I selected two toolpaths like individually and I hit generate, it used a hundred percent of my CPU. And when I when I selected it as a setup, it only used like 20% of my CPU. And this was weird to me, right? Because why would it why was it that when you select the setup, it only uses a portion of a fraction of your CPU and a process time is super fast. But when I use both it like it throttled my CPU to 100%, and the temperatures actually went a lot higher as well. So I didn't understand. I'm still trying to figure out what that is all about. But in the general sense of it, uh, CPU is your biggest thing. So if you're going to spend money on a computer so that you want to make Fusion faster, get the best CPU you could possibly get. Single threaded is the most important. Multi thread doesn't really matter that much. It'll use it'll use multi thread when it needs to to supplement stuff, but your single thread processing speed is the biggest thing, right? So I, I'm sure most people knew this, but I, I wanted to prove it because like I couldn't figure out specifically what it was. My older desktop had you know 128 gigs of RAM and it had RTX 2070 and it was still you know crap. But that's because I had a Xenon workstation processor. So uh, I have I have an AMD 5950X on this one, and the thing is just killing it. So um, I also went, uh, yeah, and I, I tried other jobs that I worked in the past where the the generation time was super long, and everything just cut in, like within a tenth of the time now. So um, the only one that I th saw that wasn't faster by 10x was Flow Toolpaths. So there's still something going on in there, or maybe there's just uh, my sepal rate was too small and it just needed that much time to generate. But my flow to pass still took quite a bit of time, but it was still a lot faster than my old computer. So the gains are still there. They just kind of vary depending on, you know, what step over you're doing, what tool pad and thing like that. So, but CPU is definitely the greatest benefit of anything. If you're going to drop cash in anything, drop it in that. You can kind of like lower the requirements on everything else. Yeah, I, like what I found also um, for the work that I was doing, because like, it's such uh, it's a lot of repeated pattern, like repeated geometry. Um, memory was my main bottleneck. Uh, everything else being equal, 
I think like say if you're not running out of memory, then you're fine. But if you were like if your model's exceeding and you start swapping, that's it just kills the performance of fusion and it gets real buggy also um, when it's tight on memory. But uh, as long as you have enough headroom, like and that could be 32 gigs, could be 64, depends on your models, right? Yeah, I think uh, other than CPU, some of the toolpath strategies have pretty big performance penalties. I think scallops like one of the worst. And actually, adaptive clearing can be pretty slow to generate because uh, I think that's also single threaded. Most of their, I think most of the fusion kernel strategies are single threaded. Um, like I've switched over to steep and shallow, which you know you have to have the. It's only available in the manufacturing manufacturing extension, but it uses the Delcam kernel, and that seems to be both faster and more stable for a lot of the finishing stuff I do now. Like uh, my to overall cam generation time. Um, since I quit using scallop and, and some of the other fusion strategies and just kind of use steep and shallow for as much finishing as I can get away with, like it's more reliable and it's faster. <laughs> like camp overall generation is faster. Uh, so that's another, you know, that's another thing you might, sometimes it might just be the particular strategy you're picking is just really slows you down. If you can, you know, especially on finishing, if you can find an alternate, you know, try, try at least one of the other strategies and see if it, uh, you know, assuming it's generating the kind of toolpath and finish you want, um, it might generate a lot faster too, or be more stable. I think there's actually some bugs in Fusion Scallop. Like it crashed that when I use that, when I have a scallop finishing strategy in any of the, the molds I'm doing, like my odds of crashing on the Mac, at least I don't know about windows on the Mac go with quite a, increase quite a bit. So it's much more stable without any, any of those in the uh, scallop toolpaths in there. Yeah, no, it's same thing. Like each toolpath kind of had like its own different thing, but no matter what, I saw drastic benefits with this new CPU processor, right? So generally, the, the yeah, the more CPU power you got, the better it is. And I haven't overclocked it yet, but that's my next step as I'm going to be overclocking it. Um, I'm kind of like not happy with store bought off the shelf uh, CPU coolers like the all in ones and AOs and stuff. So. I've, I've been doing some research and I think I, I can design my own heatsink and all inclusive because I want a more compact version that can run a little bit more flow. So I'm working on that right now. And when I get that done, then I'm going to overclock my machine and rerun that toolbar and see if I can get even more gains off of that. But yeah, if anyone's curious, uh, the machine that I'm running right now is the AMD 5950X. I have an RTX 3090 thanks to Winston. He helped me get that off a new egg shuffle. Uh, and 32 gigs of RAM, so uh, DDR4, 3600 megahertz. So that's the spec. I mean, it's very standard. You know, uh, I think I don't know. With if there's the exception anything. of the top of the line graphics card. <laughs> yeah, I mean, got lucky on that one. So uh, yeah, thanks again, Winston, for helping me get that. Yeah, I'm getting you're getting me excited for uh, like the next generation of Apple Silicon on desktop. I think that's going to be pretty pretty fast with Fusion, assuming Autodesk does a native. I think we just, um, I was going to ask you guys, so I think AU is going to be virtual again this year, right, Winston? I think you mentioned that. Um, I'm guessing there's no Fusion Academy this year, uh, at least not in person. So I, was, I didn't know if you guys had any in-person conferences or trade shows. I think PMTS is happening, like, it's a physical event this year, right? I, I think I saw something about that, but um, I didn't know if you guys had any trade shows here plan on actually physically going to this year nothing that i know about is uh in person and the only one i'd be interested in is the Port fusion portland thing so yeah yeah i hope they do that again so maybe next year 
but uh, I miss that. Yeah, I miss kind of just seeing everybody, you know. Yeah, we, you know, we still need to go over and have a Daytron Neo fun time. Yeah, anytime. And uh, I, I want to, I still want to get out to the West Coast this year. Um, so I, I actually had plans to go, but that event got pushed off to January. Um, but I don't think I'm going to wait that long. So I might get out there in fall. We'll see. It's just like trying to get enough, get some days off. <laughs> it's kind of tough. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Not a bad problem to have, have but. A- uh, <laughs> spindle time to spare yeah i need i need a robot that can run things while i'm gone right? that's actually your machine is what i was thinking about when i was designing this cpu cooler because i'm going to be cutting uh plexiglass and i want it to be like basically super clear so i was thinking the daytron would probably be perfect for that so when we do come over there i'll probably be making that that cooler you know on that machine yeah daytron um, sells some acrylic tools that give you basically clear finish yeah are you okay cutting copper uh i've never tried it but yeah i mean i don't have any objection just i don't have any speeds and beats for it so oh um, we'll figure that out yeah, yeah. okay um, yeah i've got i think i've got two, the aluminum tooling should work fine on that single flutes yeah i'll bring a bunch of stuff over but cool yeah that's that's if we do come over that's what i'll be working on Chris, you should um, see if you can figure out the um, kind of the thermal footprint or the um, the layout of the CPU to see if you should optimize flow in certain areas, um, because most of the heat in multi-core processors, um, it's like in the middle, like across the orientation and the, the hot spots are not uniform. Yeah, so I've been doing research in that. And um, for the Ryzen cores, it looks like if you can jet the water down the center and then uh, across the entire surface in a small little like uh, rectangular opening, and then when the when the water goes down and hits the heat sink, have it spread half to the right, half to the left as it goes over the like the fins. That's how they that's how they make all a majority of their heat sink uh, fin like directions, and they are what are they they are going left to right across when you're looking at i don't know the direction here but basically like it crosses over what you're talking about right like the the processor and where the chips and stuff are that's how they make all the ryzen ones. i think the intel ones are slightly different but yeah i've been studying this I'm, i've been basically looking at all the companies that do make the heat sink and the way that they divert their water flow and stuff like that and how they make their fins and there's similarities on every company most of them design it very similar so that tells me that there's a reason why that's being done that way it's probably that's the best way to do it right so i've been kind of like formulating uh taking pictures and and measurements off of all these companies and putting them together to kind of create uh like the way i would approach it you guys uh have anything interesting coming up next week Next week, not really. I'm just waiting for uh, for a motherboard to come in because Chris's stupid <laughs> computer purchase pushed me into starting to uh, build my own new one. Yeah, both of you guys uh, do your fusion primarily on Windows, right? Yeah, I do. I'm half and half on Mac, um, but I figured if I had a CPU and a PC that was significantly better. That'd probably push me to to sort of have like a dedicated cam machine, and right now, like my Mac can do everything. It's just especially when I do say like five axis stuff on the Pocket NC, it really bogs down. So 
I, I've been itching to to just I just need an excuse to buy a new computer or build a new computer. And the fact that my computer won't be able to run Windows 11 is a good enough reason for me. So, uh, yeah, my CPU is from 2012. Uh, it's a third generation i7, so it's it's way older than anything. Like People are like, oh, you don't need a new computer. You just need to enable these BIOS settings to run Windows 11. No, like my computer <laughs> is before that technology was even like grandfathered into the motherboard. So, yeah. The switch to like a current technology is going to like just blow you away on how fast it is. Yeah. It's like, it's an, that's the neat thing about skipping a few generations is that you get pleasantly surprised. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I looked it up like for a, for a processor, if you buy it today, um, versus like for the same amount of money that I paid in 2012 for a processor today, it's like 300 plus percent, like faster, uh, just for a middle, like middle of the road CPU. Okay guys. Well, I don't want to go, uh, wrap it up here. So if you got any, yeah, go catch up on your work so you can accrue some extra spindle time so we can come <laughs> visit. Yeah, actually I've had, uh, I did a little bit of, uh, testing yesterday for new, uh, basically a new finishing strategy for upcoming job. I got, uh, probably this is going to show up tomorrow, <laughs> hopefully start programming it tomorrow. Um, but yeah, it was kind of, I, last week I had a couple of days of the Neo basically, um, you know, available to me to do whatever I wanted. And I ended up 3d printing stuff all day. <laughs> so <laughs> I think uh, this week I'll have some time to, I, I'm kind of just waiting till I get the new compressor. Cause I, I don't want to run this compressor for anything other than the business. Cause I'm just not sure how long it's going to last. Once it, the Kaiser gets here, I'll be much happier. <laughs> so, or much more comfortable, you know, running, uh, for fun projects too. Yeah. Understandable. Yeah. It's just like, I don't want to be out there with that hammering noise, you know, that compressor. So it's supposed to be quiet and most of the time it is, but actually I think what's going on, I think one of the gaskets on one of the heads is, uh, like the little silicone gasket. I think I ran it, um, when I first had the Neo, I was running it to the point where it was like, I didn't have any fan blowing on it and basically didn't even have a, you know, didn't have air conditioning or anything back then. And uh, I think, you know, it was getting into thermal overload. So I think it actually damaged the silicone gasket on one of the heads. It's kind of, I pulled all the heads off, try to figure out why it was louder than it was when it was new. And they all look good except for one. So um, I think once I get it, get it down and get the new compressor in, I'm going to just basically do the basic rebuild on that one. So get it working again. I don't know if I'm going to sell it. I, get, I basically, I get either get the scroll compressor working again. One of those is going to be my backup. Um, the cat actually did okay, so I might actually keep that as my backup and sell the scroll once I get it fixed under warranty. But uh, I don't know. I got to figure out. One of them's definitely easier to move around than the other one. That that scroll compressor's heavy. <laughs> the Kaiser's even heavier. I think the Kaiser's 600 and something pounds. Um, and the scroll's 300 plus, and then the cat's on wheels, and it's like 120. So it's super easy to move around. Um, you know, like take out to the shed when I don't need it kind of thing. So not so easy to do with the other one. That's kind of what I'm waiting on to do fun projects, but hopefully like, uh, in August I'll start actually be doing stuff I can show on Instagram. I haven't posted on Instagram in over a month, uh, mainly just cause I've, I've been busy and I've been doing stuff that I can't show. So, uh, I think that's going to hopefully improve in August. 
I'm going to start getting to work on some of my own projects. That's good to me. We got flight credits to use. Yeah, I got a bunch. <laughs> okay, guys. Well, I appreciate it. It's good to talk to you guys again. I'm glad everyone's still there. Yep. Still kicking. Good night, guys. Have a good one. Night.